0: Welcome to the National Gallery of Ireland's short podcast series inspired by our temporary exhibition Mondrian. This pair of episodes will explore two creative arenas, architecture and music, that have become intrinsically linked with Mondrian's work. This first episode features architect and host of the Irish podcast series What Do Buildings Do All Day, Emmett Scanlon, speaking with Mondrian scholar and academic professor Michael White.
1: Peter Cornelius Mondrian was born on the 7th of March 1872 in Amersfoort near Utrecht. In 1880, age 8, Mondrian and his family moved to Winterswijk, and 12 years later, age 20, Mondrian enrolled in the Rijks Academy for Art in Amsterdam. Over his life, Mondrian worked in 14 studios in several countries, and he died in New York on the 1st of February 1944. It was in the Netherlands that I first encountered the work of Mondrian, and as a student of architecture, it was his membership of the De Stahl group that led me to him. It was in the Netherlands that I first encountered the work of Mondrian, and as a student of architecture, it was his membership of the De Stahl group that led me to him. In my second year of studies, we embarked on a class trip, and we visited the Schroeder house designed by architect Gerrit Rietveld and house owner True Schroeder, a model of which has been included in the exhibition of Mondrian at the National Gallery. As a young architect and as a student figuring out the world and looking for purpose and reason in life, I took from der style a core message of unity in diversity. That is, their work communicated to me that you could be an individual, you could be distinct, and the world would and could draw strength from that. But only if you maintain some responsibility to the wider world, to other people, and to larger ideas and notions of the collective and of society. It is a design, and indeed social and political philosophy, that without doubt was fundamental to my personal and architectural formation, and I carry it with me today. Later though, when living in the Netherlands, I went to see what I remember at the time as an enormous retrospective of Mondrian's work in The Hague. The exhibition included a reconstruction of the studio he lived in in Rue de Par in Paris. As an architect, I had been paying attention to the houses, to the work of architects, but perhaps naively, it was easy to read architecture into that reconstruction of the studio, and to imagine Mondrian as an architect, who, when he began to use the studio en route de Par for the second time in 1919, had already spent some years back in the Netherlands being involved with the other men of the De Stijl group. That group was composed of designers, architects, sculptors, painters, and one of the attractions of the group seemed to be the ease and the disciplinary promiscuity that existed. It was refreshing that Mondrian, a painter, could write such radical texts on the house and the city, and that Rietveld, the architect, could adopt the painter's colour philosophy. So yes, it was easy to imagine Mondrian as an architect or a decorator, or as someone who was using space to understand his own work. But is this really the case? With Mondrian coming to Dublin to occupy some of the best rooms in the city, it seemed like a good chance to think again about his rooms, and to spend a little more time with him in his studios. For this I spoke to Michael White who is a scholar of Mondrian and has also curated and hung the paintings of Mondrian on walls for exhibition. Michael and I talk broadly about the role of the studio in the work of Mondrian, to really properly understand the painter and his studio, and we pay particular attention to the Studio on Unrooted Apart, now sadly lost, but it was the one, or at least its reconstruction, that I encountered in The Hague as a student, and it is here we begin, and I recall from Michael, that first fateful encounter with the wonderful work of Piet Mondrian. Michael, as an architect, I first encountered Mondrian through his involvement with the style, um, mm-hmm. particularly because he was working with people who were particularly interested in architecture. And then later I saw a reconstruction of his studio in an exhibition in the Netherlands and then realised or started to realise that the architecture and the, the spatial reality of his, his studio was an important part of his his work. Why is it that we're particularly paying attention to his studio when we're discussing his work?
0: Well, his studio was, well, and to say there are a number of studios and we might talk very specifically about, about certain ones of them, but, but uh, particularly one that he occupied for a good deal of time in, in Paris through the 1920s and 30s became a very famous location in its own day, lots of people visited it at the time. It plays a sort of transformatory role in, in a number of uh, artists' biographies. And it, it became celebrated also through publications and, and photographs, which we might dis- discuss um, uh, later. So it had real kind of reputation in, in, in its day, but it was a very, very, that one in particular, was a very peculiar space. And it left lots of people very confused about its actual dimensions and so forth. And then many, many years later, so the building actually was destroyed in the, in the, um, the, actually finally in the 1940s and 50s, when it was next to the Garmont-Parnasse in, in the south of, of Paris and they expanded the station, and actually, they removed all of the buildings around, including that space. So it remained a sort of mysterious space that nobody could quite work out its dimensions. And then subsequently later, researchers actually found the, the drawings for the building and were able then to reconstruct its, its physical dimensions and then came this process actually of of reconstructing that studio and representing it so there are two moments so one is the original moment the Mondrian was occupying it manipulating it in some very extraordinary ways opening it to visitors and then you have later this moment of, of a, almost a eureka moment where someone actually turns up with the with the original plans and said okay we know exactly what its dimensions were now and we can actually work out what these odd photographs are, are representing and then the processes of physical reconstruction start and they start then to have a, a very major impact actually on the interpretation of the artist's career.
1: And you're talking specifically about the studio on rue du depart but mm. in terms of uh, let's just say a wider understanding of an, any artist's work does the studio tend to hold a particular place in how we might read or understand the contribution of that work to wider discussions and debates on art and culture? Or how, how might we understand the, the kind of position of the studio in, in the work of an artist?
0: Well, there there are there are many varied uh, studios out there that, that, that one can read about and, and actually kind of visit visit or see reconstructed. And some of them become uh, heavily mythologized. Some of them play very, very important roles in artists' careers, actually, as physical spaces. They uh, determine the mm-hmm. dimensions of the work made in the case of, of, of Pollock's uh, Jackson Pollock's kind of barn in Long, Long, Long Island, when he's putting work on the floor, actually to know the dimensions of that space are very important to understanding the work that comes out of it. Some of them have, have particular atmospheres, locations and, and, and so forth. But it's not that every uh, artist is has such an intimate relationship with with with, with the studio. For some, it, it is just more of a, uh, a functional environment It does a particular job, but others have really kind of created a sense of kind of deep personality through expressing it through the way they've used that space and also then given other people access uh, to it and and become heavily identified with it with a, with a certain place and that can be in a variety of of different ways Mondrian is is one of those artists who actually encourages an identification between himself and the space in which he's 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 working
1: and when he moved to Roudy de that was in the late 1910s and early 20s, right, yeah. in in Paris. So what stage of his, of his painting career was he at then? And what what was kind of on his mind, do you think, as he returned to Paris for the second time?
0: Yes, yeah, so um, very interestingly, so Mondrian returns to Paris in, in 1919. He's left in, in, in 1914. He'd been there for a couple of years before the, the First World War. He actually goes back to the same studio complex where he had the studio. He has to leave briefly because he finds somebody else in his studio, when he gets there, that it's been taken over by someone while he's been away for five years. He briefly goes somewhere, else, and then he returns to that same building, but into another studio within that complex. So, lots of people don't actually realise that he was um, actually occupying a studio within a building that was actually purpose-built to be artists' studios. To so had lots of neighbours who are fellow fellow artists, or lots of other people in that in in that building. But he really gets this opportunity to move into uh, one of the larger spaces in in that particular building, which is a very peculiar uh, construction. It was sort of, um, you know, constructed by a developer. You can imagine, actually, the contemporary circumstance of it now. Someone someone who who, who manages to uh, put something together quite kind of rapidly and fill it full of artists and gets kind of rent off it uh, in, a, in an interesting sort of upcoming part of the city. But so Mondrian gets into this, this, this particular space, which was actually the the infill between, between two different buildings. And it's a five-sided room um, is the actual studio he occupies there. And that's what confused people for years and years and years. It was a very, very strange shape. And nobody could quite work out from the photographs how it fitted together. And even people who had visited Mondrian, uh, who later then tried to draw it and reconstruct it, Find it really, really difficult to reimagine, and so it's only later when people actually get the plans for the building. Oh, yes, this, this this room had five sides, and and that's one of the great kind of mysteries is why the person, the artist, most kind of. Uh, um, associated with um, orthogon- orthogonality in perpendicular lines actually really, really feels at home in a five-sided room uh, where he doesn't, he doesn't actually have a, 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 a 90 degree corner uh, anywhere in it. Um, so it's a very, and, and so the way he then uses that space to create very interesting spatial effects, and it's not very big, it's only about five five meters or so across. Um, becomes the great kind of feature of of, of that space, and so that leads many people later who have actually been there, visited him, struggling to draw a plan of it on on, mm. on a piece of paper.
1: And when he came back, he had he had spent some time previously in the Netherlands, and he had become involved with the Dusseldorf group and mm-hmm. had started to or continued his thoughts and thinking about architecture and space, and had been influenced by their thinking and. Um, I understand particularly Bart van der Leck's use of colour and his his kind of discussion on um, monumental sculpture and so forth. Did that then start to influence how Mondrian started to appropriate and use the space? I mean, the space is, when it's photographed, you can very clearly see, or when you read the photographs, you can very clearly see that not only was it holding his work in how we might understand his work in a gallery, which is the paintings and canvases he was working on, Mm. but he was putting things on the walls and on, in that space, which were also relating to his wider kind of theoretical and thinking ideas about neoplasticism and how space might be occupied and used. Isn't isn't that the case? Yes, absolutely, 100%.
0: So while he's in the Netherlands, it's a very strange period in, in, in Mondrian's life uh, uh, that he's, he never planned to, to be there for those years. He really went from from sort of one room to another. Um, he had a little kind of um, uh, shed almost that, it, that, that he used uh, for a short time as a, as, as a studio. He was kind of staying with friends. He was living a very, a very kind of provisional existence there, but made some really important uh, new contacts that he hadn't had previously in the Netherlands with artists, as you mentioned, such as Bart van der Leck. And van der Leck was really kind of pioneering a different approach to thinking about uh, uh, the relationship between painting and architecture. For van he is moving into using uh, kind of very kind of abstract shapes and prim- primary colors but he absolutely did not want to be seen as a decorator. He did not want to be seen as someone who just comes along afterwards, you know, the architect is kind of finished and then come along and just kind of paint the walls. He wanted to, to imagine a new form of, of, of painting that actually had a, a kind of con- constructive potential of its own. And um, i be interested in your, your thoughts about, about this as, a, as an architect, that, that was a kind of um, a provocative position uh, to, to take and, uh, and, and led to actually quite an antagonistic relationship to certain kind of architects that actually continues through some of the style and some of the discussions between painters and architects. If you understand colour actually to be um, spat- potentially spatially disruptive, then obviously you need an architect to be open to that uh, possibility. And that certainly comes up later in Theo van in Dusburg's uh, discussions with the architect uh, JJP Out were out objected to uh, Van Duesen's, um intention to use um, black on the exterior of some some buildings because they thought they'd actually read as negative space and was like kind of uh, disrupting and destroying the sense of uh, uh, architectural space. But that's the sort of discussion that, that Mondrian is exposed to in the Netherlands, uh, in the De Salle group and, and and the articles that are published in that, that magazine about thinking about this relationship between, between painting and architecture in, in a new
1: way. Mm. And of course... I mean, Mondria later went, I mean, he made many contributions to that magazine and, and to the mm-hmm. Digital Magazine and to other publications where he did talk or write about architecture in a specific way. And very much, I suppose, articulating this notion, which I guess is comes from his thinking and his position and his theory of neoplasticism, the sense that the home might be read as part of the street and might be read as part of the wider city, might be read as, and human, the individual human is read as part of this, Continuous somehow environment that everything is articulated and individual, but somehow never to the detriment of of the, of the whole. Isn't isn't that correct? And somehow his studio reads like that too, doesn't it? There's this, there's a search for balance in the way that he might have tried to reconcile some of those uh, compositions in terms of even placing furniture. I mean, one of the things that I I, I came across in, in kind of researching is is that. And I didn't know so well about Mondrian. In fact, is that he was a designer of furniture, and he made specific built interventions in his studio as well to try and free up space, or to try and order and and again find this balance within the space.
0: Well, that's something. Just going back to the the, the, the reconstruction um, that was made in first at, at as, as a scale model in the nineteen eighties, and then actually as a as a as a one to one model in in the nineteen nineties. The person who made that first. Um, full-scale reconstruction of, of the rue des Départ studio, Franz Posma is a trained uh, architectural model maker. And his great interest was exactly in what you're describing, is, is then matching the photographs to the exact dimensions of the, of the, of the room as known to see what Vondrian was actually doing in terms of where he put the furniture. And, and, and um, Franz Posma's um, thesis is that Bondrian that, that was actually responding to Particular architectural features of the, of the room to see into, where certain roof joists were, and aligning and the bits of furniture he had to to both kind of work with and to create kind of new sense of space in in, in in that room. So he he imagines Montreal actually as as having architectural ambition, even with very modest objects you know, such as a cupboard and 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 and, and a table that they place a very specific. Points in the room that you can match up with 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 some of its uh, uh, specific architectural features. Later on, it's true that, that, that Mondrian actually made some of his own furniture. Some of that is to do with um, um, the kind of very kind of provisional way that, that he lived and what he what he could afford. But certainly in, in New York he he began making furniture there, and that's yeah some of that survives uh, and is even uh, uh, documented in in his catalogue raisonné. There's a little section actually on. On furniture uh, as well, we have very little idea what what Mondrian thought about his furniture. He never wrote about that, but he, he wrote uh, many times actually about about architecture.
1: Mm. The studio too in Paris was, I mean, it was a domestic place. I mean, it was a workplace insofar as there was a room, the five sided room you talk about, which looked back over the street and had a had a obviously it was the place that he worked and the place that became. Well, photographed or photographed and disseminated. Mm. But before you got into that space, was living quarters, and in terms of how we might understand it, a small room, kitchen, bedroom. Mm. So, did Mondrian live and work in the same space in Rue de, de Par?
0: Yes, yeah, so there's some um, uh, sort of discussion really about where he slept. So, when you came into this first uh, small room, this sort of anteroom, so certainly there was a, a space for him to cook, and there appears to have been. A bed there, or at least at various points. um Some people think he actually had the, had a bed behi- behind at the back of of, of, the, of the studio main studio space where he, where he painted. So it's, nobody seems to be really certain. It's a tiny space, exactly where where he slept. But it's certainly that there seemed to be a bed in that first room. Uh, there's some quite interesting accounts of Mondrian cooking. Uh, it's not something we, we necessarily kind of associate with him as, a, as 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 an artist, but this. That, that studio, one of the attractions of it for him was about the first time he had had a studio in, in years and years and years where he could actually cook for himself. And it's another interesting thing to think about. We don't think about artists in this way uh, so much but, that um, they kind of go into the cafe all the time. And all the, Part of this was out of, out of necessity. Lots of people just ate out continually because they actually didn't have the facilities where they lived. To uh, look after themselves, uh, they didn't have uh, cookers and fridges and goodness knows 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 what. But Mondrian actually gets uh, a cooking facilities there, and there's a really interesting correspondence he has at certain points in the 1930s uh, about uh, various diets he's he's following, and uh, certainly by the 1930s he was following what's known as the Hayes. Diet, which comes back occasionally into into fashion, okay. uh, I think Princess Diana at one point was on the Hayes uh, diet. It's uh, it's known um, actually as um, uh, food combining. This is the one where where you 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 don't eat protein and carbohydrates at the same. Time, okay. uh, and it was devised by an American doctor. And apparently, Man Ray kind of put uh, Mondrian on onto on, on this, and he was very <laughs> enthusiastic about it. So we've got some actual kind of records of what was his favorite. You know, like cooking uh, uh, this uh, fur type of chicken stew, and and various things like that. Um, yeah, so he becomes quite domesticated in that space.
1: I mean, the reason I ask that is because I'm just curious about about him as a man too, because and just as a human being living in the world, because. The discussion around the studio talks about it as a place of work as an artist, but of course, if he's living and working there, and and in a moment we can talk about it being also a place of conviviality and, and entertaining and, and inviting people into you know various discussions or whatever, part of me wonders, and maybe it's a very simplistic reading, but it is a kind of a human instinct to try and appropriate places you live in very specific ways. And for someone who is so fundamentally interested and determined to can reconsider how we might uh, let's say align space and art and graphics and you know uh, turn that into kind of a philosophy and to try and search for this balance, one has to assume somewhere that that he's doing that not only kind of front of house but also back of house, and I know that in one of the accounts of the reconstruction of the studio, there's um, some criticism of it that it doesn't deal with those spaces or the or this stairwell that brings you up into the apartment because Mondrian was also appropriating them with these cardboard coloured Uh, rectangles and squares of his work isn't isn't that true so I'm really curious about that that those actions that uniquely or not always uniquely because many artists might live and work you know in the same spaces or many people do but it seems to be not discussed as much um with regard to his work the fact that he he, he's appropriating that space as we all do when we when we live somewhere you know when we dwell on the earth
0: yes so interestingly there the, there's a there's another reconstruction of of the Rue de Dépas studio and it's in the uh the house dedicated to 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 mondrian in the place of of, of his birth in amersfoort in in the netherlands the mondrian house and they've got a kind of permanent uh, reconstruction there where they also have this this other room is reconstructed uh, as well so that's let's say very different because you get that the full sense of of this living quarters, and there's some there's some effort made there to yeah, to indicate this was a li- lived-in space. And it's a very very different atmosphere than to the the other reconstructions often presented in in, in exhibitions, which feels like an exhibition of space. Feels like mm. seeing it as as a work by Mondrian rather than his home. And as you're, you're right, it's a very very um, different feeling. In terms of of, of Mondrian feeling at home. What we do know quite a lot about is is uh, what he took with him when he moved from studio to studio. Unlike uh, many of us, Mondrian was not particularly attached to books. By the end of his life, he only has a small, very small collection of books, even though we know that he, he read a lot uh, through his life, but he gave lots of his books away. He had this idea actually that these things should circulate, uh, uh, you know, should, once, once you read something, you pass it on, highlight oh, like this. So he was often giving those sorts of things things away. He Kept his record player, so his gramophone, or, or, or good precisely that was a very important uh, yeah. object in in his life. But he updated his his uh, record collection. So we know that, that, that when he when he leaves um, Paris to go to London in 1938, he gave someone a, a selection of, of of his records that, again, he thought you know he'd kind of listened to them enough. They were a bit kind of out of date, and he moves on and starts kind of he's kind of collecting anew. But the coloured cardboard, the, the transformation of that studio uh, aesthetically, that's something that, that he instantly does as he moves into these new studios through the later mm. 1930s, as you say, appropriate and making them into uh, more, you know, something that looks like Mondrian's uh, studio. There's a wonderful account uh, by Barbara Hepworth of what he does in London when he moves you know, this is This is making himself feel like he's arrived is 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 then transforming those walls and and putting up those covered squares.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, in a way, not to not to diminish his you know creative achievement in that regard, but in a way, it's it's a basic instinct somehow. It's like I'm I'm moving, and he moved a lot. As you said, he had 14 studios, and and very often he was um, living in proximate you know relationship to those studios too. So he was claiming mm. space somehow in, in this. Mm really specific and I guess fruitful way. And did that evolve across the studio? I mean, did the way, the techniques, I mean, I presume he didn't carry the same material with him from studio to studio. And, and did he make new material for for that kind of expression or that engagement with the physical fabric of the space from place to place, do you know?
0: Well, we, we what we do know is that when when he really, well, people have been trying to track this back and find out when was the first time that he, that he did this. And, and there's some theories that, that he was even doing it in a provisional way. When he was uh, at the studio, that was say virtually a kind of shit in the Netherlands in in the in the, during the First World War. Um, there's you know, we can debate about whether that's true or not. But certainly by the time he's back in Paris, he's writing to people about about um, you know revising you know redoing the studio, and uh, and starting to engage in this in this practice. And he talks then about the the difficulties of of painting the the wall, the costs involved. And um, and the fact that you know he's, he's he doesn't know how long he's going to be in any particular place, and, and it seems at that point then, the idea of using these kind of panels seems to to, to arise, and also let, lets him change things around, and, and it becomes uh, you know quite a, an elegant solution to that 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 problem. Mm. As uh, times go on, various other things start start to come in uh, to the practice. So by the time we get to the final studio in New York, we can see that he's also putting. Uh, reproductions photographic reproductions of his own paintings up on the walls as well so he's okay. that's that's a really interesting sort of new development of, of then thinking about about how he's surrounding himself also with with a like a little kind of gallery of his own works and then reading across from say from these kind of colored cardboard panels through to you know things that he's photographs and whatever that's that's and that that is a we, we don't know quite where that would have gone uh, had, he, had he lived longer, but that's a very interesting next step.
1: Development, yeah. Mm. So back to Paris in the 20s, and Mondrian is, you know, doing what he's doing in his studio, making his work and living there, but then he also seems to be very clear on on the value of the studio to him and his, his work, maybe in two ways, one in how it's photographed and disseminated, but before that, in terms of how he uses it, Again, this may be common practice, but how he uses it to gather people to him to talk and to to discuss work. Mm-hmm. It looks there's very many photographs of it being used socially, you know, mm-hmm. people drinking and talking. Even though it's quite a small space, it looks sort of large and convivial in in those photographs. Mm-hmm. And then, obviously, it's a place to sell work and to talk to critics and to 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 um, yeah, to to participate, I suppose, in in the business of art. Let's say mm-hmm. so. How, how did he use that, and was that that was a very conscious part of his his intention, i think
0: yes, I, I, I think you can start um by saying, you know what what do what do we not see and we we don't see Mondrian at work until almost right at the end end of his life. We get the first uh, photos of him actually painting through that whole period in Paris. What we don't see is 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 Mondrian at work, and there's lots lots and lots of you know, contested accounts of where he actually painted, uh, what his particular methods were, whether he uh, laid um, uh, canvases kind of flat on the table, put them on the easel. Seems to be that he was actually working between between different parts of the studio to do different uh, sorts of things, but um, we specifically do not see him that doing actually making the paintings and that from the accounts we have in correspondence it seems he was quite careful about when people came into the studio and what they would actually see so certainly he invited lots of people in at various various times but not to see him at work he was very private about about that and then yeah so you're right we absolutely we we uh uh we see it as actually a, a site of of um of uh, a lot of kind of happy occasions actually there, um we, we think about Mondrian as quite an austere person but he wasn't at all he was very sociable lots of, of very close friends people he stayed friends with you know for, for, for many decades and uh, by old accounts was very good company and um, people like to visit him and, and we've got lots of, of that we also have lots of accounts of people going to uh in, look to kind of buy work one of my favorite is 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 the american art dealer Sidney janice who turns up in the early 1930s and he's admiring a particular painting and mondrian tells him that oh, we can't have that yet it's not it's not it's not finished i need to i need to finish this uh, this this blue square which was about i don't know about 10 centimeters across or something like that and he doesn't let janice actually have the painting for a full year <laughs> which is it's kind of a so it's a with a kind of visit to the studio and buying from the studio becomes you know so mondrian I think that's very that's very kind of deliberately staged to make it into this sort of very kind of special process by which you might you might sort of start to talk to the artist about oh I like that and then and then and then and then you know it was like he gives it up incredibly reluctantly he's obviously he's delighted to sell. Yeah. Uh, and I'll work to a major New York car dealer uh, but it's you know I, you almost have to beg, beg him to sell you something yeah so so absolutely he's engaging in all of those things but there's a great what remains a great mystery is his actual techniques that he wants to guard uh, pretty carefully
1: so he didn't want people to see him paint because he didn't want people to know how he painted is that what you mean yeah well it seems strange because
0: when you, when you look at the painting you think well there's there's no secret to that, it's just uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> how to do that. But uh, I would sort of definitely recommend people, if you've got the chance, to go and look at them really carefully because they are very, very subtle. The, the way the paint is applied, what uh, paints are built up, and very often you you will see that the black lines are almost like they're etched into uh, the white paint. The white paint will, will, is built up in much more solidly actually stands in front of them look at the way uh, some parts of the, of, of, of the black lines might be varnished so that you get these really interesting effects of, of having certain occasions you might have a very solid matte white area of paint next to this kind of shiny black line. And in some ways the sort of line will, will kind of ping out, it will, it will kind of you'll catch your, your eye, it will actually reflect light in a way that the white isn't. And so actually it seems strange to say that sometimes the black seems brighter the white so he actually played some really interesting uh, uh games not the edges of uh, the canvas is a fascinating where things kind of go around the edge or, or not uh he actually did a lot of very cunning subtle things that uh, you can tell when you when you've actually visited the exhibition you can see these things close up that, that don't often uh, translate into reproduction
1: yeah because i mean just on that thing of the the physical artifact of the of the canvas and the painting i mean absolutely right they are incredibly subtle in in reality and i think they're they're i mean they're very interesting works because they do reproduce obviously as we know very graphically and very well at that level but actually Mm. in terms of their subtlety and their 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 craft actually and, and the capacity and his skill in building up that level of sophistication in something that looks so simple is really only can only be experienced in with your eyes and up close to the paintings and in the gallery at the moment, what's wonderful is that you can, you can be quite close to the paintings, you know, and mm. um, there's a, there's a lot of very good work. Also they're very wonderfully framed. I mean, do you know anything about his, the way in which they took care of their work? same with there's a, a Van Doesburg painting and they're very beautifully, subtly framed where the canvas is held slightly proud of a, of a very thin timber frame, which then makes the canvas almost feel like it's, it's floating, but yet it's also held against the wall.
0: Yes, yeah, so that uh, that particular framing mechanism is something that, that Mondrian uh, devised uh, while he was in the Netherlands. Uh, so through through the first World War as work, so it's it's really con- contemporary actually with his move into full abstraction. So the, the two things go go hand in hand. And he was very specific about about what you say about about having the, the the plane of the canvas it stand out in front of the of the frame. So the frame allows the the painting to be protected to be handled uh so, you know, it's part of the whole way it relates relates to the wall um but he it was very very determined that that you would he would concentrate actually on the on the on the canvas itself and not you know it's, a, it's the it's the absolute antithesis of the of the traditional kind of gold uh, frame which is almost like an object in itself it's really it's a it's the most kind of minimal uh, framing, uh, uh, one could uh, one could imagine. He had experimented earlier in his career with with um, different sorts of frames. As as a, he had an exhibition in nineteen o nine, in Amsterdam, a really big exhibition, and uh, he invested a lot in framing for that, and had some very basic, uh, you know, plain frames, so that all the works in the exhibition would would be be the same. But this move into these these very thin uh, slats is something that happens just as he's he's. He's breaking through into into full abstraction.
1: Yeah, I mean, it 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 just seems it, they just seem wonderfully mater- present as well. And, you know, they, mm. they have a material nature and and they they're not the first thing you see, but when you see them, you cannot imagine the paintings without them. So, there's it really? I mean, it's a little bit like much of the work of um, of uh, of not, not to you know not to kind of extrapolate, but in 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 that entire Dushetel group, there's always this sense of. Um, an immediate reading, but then a lot of subtle revelations of very kind of careful consideration of all kinds of things from joints to how one space connects to another, to the proportion of how a, a page mm. is laid out. You know, there, there's a real um, wonderful joy, I think, in spending time with those paintings in in, in reality. Yeah. Um, in terms of how his studio then, the Paris studio, was shared and understood both, let's say in contemporary for people like yourself or myself, we're looking back at photographs, we have the reconstructions. But at the time the photographs were taken, well, there was there was a, a bunch of very specific photographs taken of the studio and they were used for very specific purposes. Is that correct? And how were they, how, who took them and how were they um, used and appropriated by both Mondrian himself and others to, to communicate some sense of the, the interior and the studio?
0: Yeah, so the probably the most important moment for the photographing of the studio is in the mid nineteen twenties, and there there are there's kind of two particular sets that, that sometimes get a bit it can be a bit confusing which one you are seeing because because uh, they have very strong relationships. So one is um, a small group of photographs that that Mondrian we think Mondrian. Uh, had made by a local photographer called uh, Paul Del- Delbo, that we don't know very much about, apart from he had seemed to have his local studio and did some work for some other art- artists as well. He made these three very particular uh, photographs, beautiful photographs of of the main um, room in in the studio. It was photographed at the same time by Andre Kertesz, the uh, Hungarian photographer, who was brought to the studio by um, Mondrian's friend, the poet and critic Michel Sifou, and uh, there's at least one of those which is is easy to confuse with the Delbo ones because they're taken from virtually the same the same angle. Uh, the Delbo photographs start appearing uh, straight away in in um, in publications. Both um, it, Mondrian uses it uses one of them in particular to illustrate an article uh, called "Home Street uh, City," which is talking about the, the studio as a kind of model for a, for a new form of living and, and sort of new way of, way of life that could be extrapolated to the whole urban environment but it appear they appear elsewhere and also in 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 newspapers so it's used to publicize uh, Mondrian as an artist also to promote uh, his ideas the relationship between painting and, and architecture and as part of this sort of wider uh launch of of, of his kind of Persona, as as it were, There's a very inter- interesting use of, of one of the photographs in a, in a to illustrate an article in a, in a Dutch um, newspaper, which is uh, quite anecdotal about a visit visit to Mondrian. Now, what's really funny about that particular use of it is that is that um, they wanted an image of Mondrian to kind of go with it. So, so Mondrian is kind of montaged onto the photograph, mm. but he's wearing it. He's wearing his coat, so it looks like he's kind of wearing a coat. Indoors, and then the, the 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 particular kind of text about the studio is, is talking about it as this um, this uh, very kind of cool cool, as in emotionally cool place, sort of frosty place, and and uh, the sense of of kind of whether this is a we're talking about about a home or not, or the homeliness or unhomeliness of the of the studio is really kind of projected through some of these views on it. It's a very strange image of the the studios so with, with Mondrian looking like he's outside, but he's actually kind of inside uh, at the same time. So these these images start to circulate really widely so into popular press as well into uh, uh, specialist um, uh, art, art journals. And they really have a, a long-term effect. Other artists start adapting their studio space along along similar lines. Um, and they really yeah disseminate this, this very widely.
1: And why do you think they had such impact? I mean, was the studio radical at that time in terms of how it might be perceived in wider discourse and in art i mean
0: yeah so there were there were in any number of, of of places one might compare it to and and say there's actually a long history of of of, of artists um really kind of developing their, their workspaces in in some very um extraordinary ways And a back i think there'll be lots of 19th century examples i think if anyone's been to leighton house in in in, in london and 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 seen the way that that uh, Lord Leighton kind of projected his artistic identity through that, or you uh, might think of lots of kind of symbolist artists who were, who were sort of turning their studios almost into kind of temples and so forth. So there are definite precedents for it. But I think what's what so um, captured the imagination about Mondrian's studio is the, that close relationship between the work, it, so the artwork itself and what he's doing to the, the, the environment. They seem to be so much, in tune, so so deeply in, intertwined. And that that is, I think, a, a exceptional in, in the case of all the others you might, you might kind of compare it to either kind of before, during, or, or after. There seemed to be this sort of intimate relationship between uh, the practice and, and the environment. And
1: was he also as concerned then about how his work hung in other places? So in the private residence or in the public gallery? I mean, what was his... Um involvement in 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 that aspect of it or i know there was a retrospective of his work when he was alive in in amsterdam so he was probably involved in that so what was his you know beyond his own studio how was he curating and involved in his own work in terms of how it was publicly presented
0: yes yeah, so that starts that actually does start quite quite early in 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 his career and actually was um, a painting that um, doesn't get uh, um, shown probably as much anymore as it, as it might which is a uh, um, a paint, a three-panel uh, painting uh, that's uh, called Evolution. That's, uh, that's, that's in in the Hague, and uh, there, Mondrian gave very, very specific written instructions that the, the central panel should be uh, positioned just slightly higher than the two either sides. So you get this, a slightly sort of triangulated uh, 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 view of it, with a, say the centre center rising. And then later, we do have uh, particular art, artworks where he gave very, very explicit instructions. So one is a, a painting called Composition with Yellow Lines, which is a diamond-shaped uh, painting, again, in the collection in in, in Hague. We're on the on the reverse, he said that um, a number of things. So one was about the height of it, that, that he, ideally the bottom corner should be at eye level. So the whole painting's actually uh, on the wall, kind of high, higher than eye, eye level. and also that the, the painting should be flat against the wall and this is something he probably concerned him more than anything that in the way the paintings are traditionally hung with a you know on a hook with a bit of wire they would often lean forward now if you're if you're painting the way that mondrian is doing you you don't want paintings kind of leaning like that because you're going to get these perspectival distortions so he's very very keen that the paintings were actually flat uh, against the wall probably that's the thing that concerned him more than anything else other than you know their, their their height. So he's actually writing specific things like this on the reverse of works. Often he also has to write, "Which way up?" and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> as you might imagine.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, but he was very he was very very uh, concerned uh, that they that they don't get kind of distorted by by also if 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 a painting was leaning off a of, wall even slightly, you'd get kind of shadows yeah. uh, behind it as well.
1: So was he searching there for some? relationship between the canvas and, and the wall the physical fabric nature of the space not only not only hanging in it or you know temporarily residing there but somehow it's read by the viewer as as of the wall or
0: well certainly it certainly has a closer relationship to the to the wall than than would normally be be the case and mm-hmm. um, and that's that's so being staged in in, in in the studio where, where often you see images of of, the kind of groups of, of work that he's is, that is, that is positioned. And then where you read across from them to these uh, uh, colored cardboard panels uh, all around, he's actually making compositions between the paintings and uh, the manipulation of, of, of the wall behind. Now, what that tempts people to think is that that actually what he wanted to do was sort of create a three-dimensional kind of installation art. I firmly believe that Mondrian you know, to his death identified himself you know 100% as a painter making paintings but uh, uh, certainly he was he was very acutely aware of um the what happens when you put one of his paintings in 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 a, in a space in a physical space and I've had the Extraordinary privilege to to uh, I know hang a Montreal exhibition uh, a number of years ago, and it is amazing what, what what happens as soon as you get one of these paintings. You now in a, in a room, the lines they you know whether you like it or not they start making connections with you know window frames, with mm. uh, architraves, with with what have you, and just moving something in you know, a few centimeters one way or so, something to some way, can have the most kind of dramatic effect. And uh, particularly with the diamond-shaped paintings, the lines just look like they're kind of firing off in, in all directions. You, keep, you kind of read off the painting into, into the space. And if there's any particular kind of you know, fitting somewhere or a corner somewhere or a, a lintel somewhere, they start to talk to each other. You know, there's like a conversation starts happening. And you can, you can say you can, extraordinary things could happen just by moving um, a small kind of number of centimetres around.
1: And that's very, that's really interesting. And it's got me thinking, I'm curious about whether Mondrian, was he conscious of what location he was painting for? Um, by that, I mean, again, maybe because we're talking about a specific period in his work, the much of the work of Der style was interested in the domestic, not only of course, but it did stem from, some of it did stem from an interest in, 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 you know, furniture or in those houses that are in the exhibition as well, Van Doesburg's Houses, where there is a particular attitude to interior space and the gathering of spaces and connecting spaces one to another, which is very radical at the time. Mm -hmm. I'm just thinking about Mondrian's work. And when you start talking about it connecting to various, you know, things in a room, Does it hang well in domestic spaces? I mean, can or was that ever on his on his mind? I mean, was he painting for the gallery or just painting for for painting? You know, I'm just thinking, how does it sit in a in a normal domestic room to have a Mondrian on your wall?
0: Well, I've yeah. Now, the majority of those uh, abstract Mondrians, uh, which are you know, we should just reflect on for for a moment that he started kind of painting in that way when he was he was just about you know, he was approaching fifty. Uh, so yeah. you know, he'd, he'd got a long, long um, you know, previous career in, the painting in a painting in a variety of different ways. But that the, the moment where he kind of hits the style that he's most associated with, he's, he's about 15. And he's got another kind of two decades of, of, of painting ahead of him before before he dies. Well, he knew he was going to die, but we've talked about it's kind of 20 year period. Across those 20 years, he probably completes from that point on, there are 300 paintings or some, mm. something like that. Which is not like a massive amount for for two, two decades uh worth. And there's some years where he only completes a handful uh, yeah. of, of paintings. So he takes a long time, he takes an awful long time over them. Um he's had a career up to that point of of really painting, I think, primarily for a domestic uh market, thinking about works that would go into people's rooms. He's already had an idea before then that um uh, when he got back to a studio in 1919, one of the things he did was he, clear it, he cleared it out for lots of uh, older work, and he sent them back to um, a very close friend and patron in in, in Holland who basically got this like, massive collection of, of, of artworks. And they'd start discussing at that time uh, whether they should use them to actually create, like a Mondrian museum, actually kind of make, make a kind of uh, a, a museum around them. So already he's, he's starting to think about a slightly different, location for its work but there's not the context of that at that time that there would be now for for working closely with the museum so he, he keeps the same sort of scale uh all, all the way through and lots of people are actually are buying for that space but most of those paintings now are in museums the number that are in private hands is minuscule so mm-hmm. the chance to actually see them you know, to go into someone's living room and see him, Andrean. I mean, I'd love to do that, but uh, I, I've never had the experience. I've only seen them in galleries. Yeah. And uh, um, But that's the scale that he keeps, is 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 that kind of scale of painting that that could easily go in someone's house.
1: Yeah, because they are, they do have a, an intimacy about them as well. That is, mm-hmm. um, I mean, that not to connect that to domesticity, but there is a kind of... I don't, there's always something singular about re- sometimes seeing those paintings that you're having a very particular personal experience with the canvas. Um, mm-hmm. They require your attention, they require contemplation and engagement over a sustained period. Yeah. Um, there's something kind of, maybe it's back to this thing of homely, there's something kind of triggers a kind of homely response to me in, in, in that kind of level of contemplation. You know, mm-hmm. there's, somehow you are appropriating that canvas in a very, and it's appropriating you in a way that somehow. Echoes some of the things that Mondrian was doing in his space when I when I spend time with them in, in in the gallery. Mm. To return to the reconstruction of the studios, um, there's one in existence now in Amersfoort, and then there have been some one made for for exhibition. What's your what's your position or thinking about reconstructing the studio? There's a beautiful account, for example, which is a sad account too of when the the rue De Parra studio was demolished and people standing in the street looking at these coloured walls hanging in, in the air as they were about to come down when his in, the interior of the studio was revealed to the street. But do they have a value in terms of how we might understand his work or is it problematic to try and recreate them? What what What's your view?
0: Um, I think they have great value, interpretive value. Um, I, uh, I've used a uh, uh, at least one of them in 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 an exhibition, and the way the di- directness they communicate um, uh, with with the audience is is fantastic. You know, there's there's an instant relatability. You can start to get a very strong sense of of you know an actual person who occupied a space such as this, and and uh, so that sort of level of of engagement they 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 provide, and the kind of questions they start. Uh, allowing us to to ask and to answer I think are, are fantastic I think they're very very important useful devices my concern is is where they spill over into being confused or mistaken for beings a work of art themselves um, because contemporary art practice really over over the last um, uh, three decades or more has, has made you know, the the idea of installation art the idea of an immersive artistic experience so commonplace, it's very easy for people to con- assume that that's what Mondrian was up to in the 1920s or, or so forth, where actually no no such concept was on anyone's mind. Um, so I think they they played in a really important role in his career, but they weren't necessarily the the artwork themselves. And so mm. so just to to be kind of clear about what you're looking at when you when when you see one, and and not for it to kind of take over completely from from actually attending to the the paintings themselves which you know, is my understanding of, of, of Mondrian was that that's what he was ultimately to his death was was a painter first and foremost he had you know a career that started in the 1890s and around to the 1940s of being a painter and 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 his qualities are, are, are really so manifest in in the surfaces of those those canvases and it'd be a shame if if people just sort of started looking at these other objects and and stop looking at the paintings.
1: Yeah. Uh, Perhaps Mondrian's studio is particular in that regard. I know that when I saw the reconstruction of the studio, I had not first of all understood that his studio had such a, a role to play in his life or in his practice, you know, not as a work of art but as a, you know, as a particular place of work. Hmm. But when you read when you see the reconstruction, it's so particularly resolved and and there's such echoes between his let's say his canvas and the room that one could be forgiven for reading that it is a deliberate construction constructed work of art as part of his practice say compared to other studios where you go in and it's very clearly a, because his room was tidy and organized in the way it's presented and and very controlled and the photographs are obviously very mediated as well he's standing in many of them in a suit and he you know he's well dressed and groomed and standing Mm. up and as you said he's not working in the studio it's always very often presented as a as a as a room in the way that an architect might present a room that they've designed that's without the mess or the detritus of ordinary life yeah well one object that i i
0: keep you know attending to to just remind me cuz it's 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 very seductive to be be drawn into that that presentational mode is that um, the stove you know there was this yeah. stove sticking out in the middle which uh, we know from from correspondence that uh, mondrian was very very kind of you know kind of fussy about this you know he's burning coal you know, in the center of that room and that you know that the smell the dust whatever you know it's kind of the complete antithesis of everything we 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 yeah. kind of expect or, or connect with mondrian of sort of purity whiteness and and all of that you know he, there's a coal stove slap bang in the middle he would have been constantly having to sweep up and 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 the fumes and whatever you know they would have been we would have smelled oil paint. We would smell coal. We would have—he you know, smoked, you know. <laughs> all yeah. this stuff, yeah. you know. It's absolutely he's reeked when you step foot in that in that room. And now you encounter it as this sort of purified uh, space. And that's—I keep on looking at that stove, and it just reminds me um, of of those things. You know, we talked before about you know, he cooked. You know, he would have walked past it. The pot bubbling away in the corner and, and
1: uh, yeah yeah and he would have needed it to survive a january in paris for sure yeah um in your own engagement with mondrian which has been sustained and you know you're a scholar of him and his work does he continue to reveal things to you about about himself and his work and, and what are kind of questions of art and art practice
0: yeah, so actually, one thing um, specifically to mention in relation to the studio that I've been thinking more and more about, and and would like to research a, a bit further, is in relation to colour. I mean, there's some fantastically interesting things about about in uh, uh, you know, a studio that's documented in black and white, and then and then people have made later kind of colour reconstructions of the, the actual technologies that are fascinating. Um, but Bondrian was very, as we know, you know very very attentive uh, to colour and um there's some really interesting commentaries in his in his letters about how the colors on his paintings that you know look in his studio in relation to other spaces he's very concerned about about um the effect of 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 light in the the perception of 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 his artworks and that's something i've become more and more fascinated uh, by really it seems in one sense his color use becomes very simplistic it's just red yellow and blue black and white but actually not at all not, not off, at all no. you know the, the kind of depths and extraordinary kind of mixing that he does with the, with the yellows that go all open you know sometimes they are verging on green where the whites are, are actually often very kind of pale blues where uh, the reds are, are built up in, in 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 layers you get this this real kind of depth and intensity of, of color those i'm very interested in that and and thinking about the studio has been very Interesting in that as well, and my my friend curator uh, Hans Janssen, i could give him a little kind of name check here. Just he he really he startled me once in conversation, and but it's the most extraordinary thing to think about. He said, "Michael, well, just remember." He said, "said Mondrian, you know, was born by candlelight. He worked by gaslight in 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 Paris, and then finally he works with with electric light in in New York." the man's career kind of spanned this incredible transformation in just the way he experienced illumination. And to think about that in relation to actually trying to make paintings, you know, first, you know, across this kind of period of time. And I'd never seen it before, but, but Hans, uh, you know, pointed out, he, he's got these images of the New York studio. We see these big, bright, these big kind of electric uh, uh, lights. You can see that actually, he was talking about uh, Mondrian started to work in the evening at night in a way he'd never done before because he was never able to do that before because he couldn't see what he was doing before and just to think about yeah the kind of technologies of illumination the idea of of, of light and color and the relationship to practice those sort of things that I'm, I'm i'm really still um trying to kind of think further and, and and in my own responses to the paintings now that i i've had the you know great privilege to see a number of them in different locations in different exhibition settings where I go oh yeah, I've seen that one. And to see how it looks different, actually, in Mm. in a different
1: place. Well, thank you, Michael, for shedding some light on Mondrian and his studio.